Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Over the years, I've met many authors who have multiple careers, and few of them really have impressed me as much as today's guest. He's an author, a consultant, he's a doctor, he's been writing books for many years and consulting with some of the top shows in Hollywood. D.P. Lyle is the Amazon number one best-selling McCavity and Benjamin Franklin award-winning and Edgar, Agatha, Anthony, Scribe and USA Today best book award-nominated author of 22 books. His essays and short stories have appeared in many anthologies. He hosts the Crime Fiction Writers Blog and the Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction podcast series. He has worked with many novelists and with the writers of popular television shows such as Law and Order, CSI Miami, Diagnosis Murder, Monk, Peacemakers, Cold Case, House, Medium, and many others. He has a new book that's just released. It's called Tally Man, and uh, Doug is with me here today. So welcome, Doug, and congrats on the new book. Hey, man, thanks for having me, Steve. I always love talking with you about story or anything else. <laughs> so thanks for having me here on the Story Blender. Absolutely. Now, I was trying to think back to when we first met, and uh, as I was telling you before we actually started recording, I was familiar with your work before we met in person because I have a copy of Forensics for Dummies, which uh, came out, I guess, what, almost 20 years ago now? Yeah. And uh, you've worked on you know, other versions of it since then and updated the information and so on. But well, my copy is dog-eared and has lots of highlights <laughs> all throughout it. So first of all, just thanks Good. for that. Thanks for um, all that you've really done for the field you know, of trying to help crime writers write authentic, uh, you know, mysteries and crimes and, um, and, and kind of science-based in, in what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody needs to know that. I don't care what you're writing in, whether it's a cozy or a hard-boiled thriller or a, a, a deeply mysterious mystery. Um, you need to know what's out there in the mm -hmm. science world. You don't have to necessarily use it, but you got to know it's available because otherwise you come off as looking, uh, you know, silly and not well-informed unless you set your story, you know, say in the 1970s or earlier, then there wasn't much forensic science around. <laughs> I know some people do that, actually. They, they'll set their mm -hmm. story in the past just so they don't have yeah. to deal with DNA and right. all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I've exactly. seen other authors <laughs> doing that, like, why are you saying this in the 1890s? Well, because right, exactly. exactly. We didn't have cell phones, so it's easier. You know, well, I mean, not easier, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier today when you have cell phones and DNA and everything like that to track people, to find people, stuff like that. So if you can, well, like, on one, one aspect, it used to be easier to find criminals because people didn't roam far from their town. If you're talking a hundred years ago, that's a good so point. Sure, there's yeah. the chances are that the perpetrator and the, and the victim knew each other and that everybody knew both of them because it was a small community. Yeah. Now, Nowadays, you got these huge cities of millions and millions of people where you can literally be anonymous and disappear. 
the problem now is electronics can mm. track you everywhere you go. Yeah. Video, cell phones, your car will tell on you. There's even been a couple of cases where the Fitbit told on the guy, you know, it's <laughs> modern technology will find you. Yeah, no, that would be embarrassing if like you did a crime yeah. and, and you were caught because of your watch, your Fitbit or yeah. something like that. Yeah, there's been a couple of cases that have worked, the Fitbit stole on them. <laughs> I think I heard about a case where um, someone's Alexa or something was used yes. in court and it was maybe it had recorded something. I can't remember. Maybe you've heard that uh, of that. It, the yeah. Uh, there was one case I think where it recorded the crime actually going down because yeah. I think that the, the victim had, had yelled Alexa was trying to get them to call nine one one and then got taken down. But, but Alexa was recording or something like that. Oh my. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They got one of the guys with the Fitbit. He said he was asleep when his house caught on fire, but he managed to get some stuff out of the house before it burned down. Uh -huh. Well, he got a lot of stuff out of the house and what they found on his Fitbit is all of his extraneous activity was, was during the half hour before the fire started. Oh, wow. So he emptied his house and then set the fire. <laughs> Cause he said like he was asleep till the fire started. Then he had to run. So it was, it told on him. <laughs> I always like hearing about, uh, you know, kind of unique angles when people have solved crimes in different ways. And I like that. I've, I hadn't heard that story, yeah. before, you know? Um, so I have to ask, do you sit around at night thinking of ways to get away <laughs> with murder? Well, I don't sit around and think about it. I mean, <laughs> but people ask that question a lot, though yeah. the list is long, but, uh, I don't, uh, people have asked that, what is there such thing as a perfect crime? And the answer is no, there's not, yeah. but the closest thing to it would be a sniper. Hmm. Cause if you're 300 yards away yeah. and you take someone out, you know, that's at a service station pumping gas or in their backyard or something, and you're 300 yards away you're only going to leave one piece of evidence behind and that's the bullet. Hmm. And if you destroy the weapon, then there's no connection back to you. However, number one, someone always sees and hears something. Yeah. Something always goes wrong. And number two, why would you do that? Uh, snipers, uh, they're either going to target someone that they know hmm. if it's a one-off or they're making a political or our, our social statement. And so they're going to keep shooting people to make their statement, you know, the beltway snipers and all that yeah. stuff. Um, so it's not going to be a one-off. It's not going to be total stranger. And if so, you got to ask yourself, why would someone do that? Um, you just don't take a high powered rifle and shoot somebody just for the hell of it and then never do it again, you know? So no, there's no such thing as a perfect crime because a citizen or in OJ's case, the dog will walk through the blood, you know, hmm. somebody, something will give you away. Something will change your timeline. And then you're scrambling. Then you're scrambling. How do I piece all this back together? And that's where the mistakes are made. Now that's pretty interesting. Um, that, you know, it isn't so much the, the act of violence that is maybe the toughest thing or whatever, but it's like, Oh, then what, then how, Right. So when you're writing a mystery, do you try to climb into the mind of the, uh, the villain or the killer or whatever and say, okay, how am I going to cover up sure. the action that I just took? Sure. The, pro the problem is in real life, most crimes are done spur of the moment or not well thought out. 
Mm. You know, someone has a couple of beers and thinks I can get away with this or they don't plan it well, or they don't think it through. And so there's the pre and the post crime behavior. And so what happens is after you've done it, it's too late to plan. Now you're in repair mode mm. and fixing mode. Uh, Scott Peterson, that famous case is, you know, they're, they're now trying to get him a new trial. Well, trust me, this guy's guilty, but if you go back and look, what did he do? He bought a boat. Nobody knew about the boat. He hid it in a storage facility that no one knew he had rented and they couldn't afford that a $14,000 boat. He and Lacey didn't have the money to do that, but he did it on the slide. Then he made these concrete weights with rebar so he could weight the body. Down. This was all planned. But then his big cardinal mistake is he went down a hundred miles from home to go fishing. And that's where he dumped her body, weighted it down in, in the San Francisco Bay area. So now he comes back and he's got a parking ticket. See, I was, I was a hundred miles away. I couldn't have done anything because his thoughts were, oh, they're going to assume she was abducted while she's out on a walk or something. Hmm. Well, lo and behold, what happened three months later, the bodies popped up a few hundred yards from where Scott put himself. Duh. Huh. And so now you're scrambling. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? How are you going to get out of this? You made a cardinal mistake. And once you make a cardinal mistake, one that you cannot backtrack from now you're in trouble. You got a lot of, you got, as Ricky Ricardo would say, you got a splaining to do, you know, <laughs> and, and it, it always, that's when it starts unraveling. And then you start changing your stories and then you start saying, well, this, well, that, and once you start that, the little ball of yarn starts unraveling in a hurry. So are there any cases that you've either consulted with or studied where you were kind of maybe impressed with the cleverness of the detectives or maybe the cleverness of the criminal? Well, I, I think there's a lot of those. And I think yeah. a lot of, a lot of, a lot of criminals do clever stuff. Um, interesting. You're talking about forensics for dummy and it kind of plays into this. Remember the great bank robbery in, uh, London or in England. Anyway, I think it was in London many, 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 many years ago where they rented the space next door and burrowed underneath and came in through the floor of the safe and, you know, stole all the stuff. They had a whole weekend to do it. Hmm. Well, they finally got caught because, you know, you start spending the money and stuff and, um, uh, they, uh, when they caught the guys and they went to the guy's house to arrest him in his little office there on his bookshelf, he had a copy of forensics for dummies. Oh, one yeah. of the, one of the cops there sent me a note and said, I thought you'd want to know this. And I said, he should have had version two. Oh, okay. <laughs> and there was a case right down here. Oh, 30 years ago in, in Laguna Niguel, that's, you know, a three wood from where I'm sitting right now in orange County, California, um, where a crew came in out of Chicago to rob a bank down there. And they basically got on the roof and drilled through the roof into the safe. Hmm. And they had all weekend to do it. And they were in there drilling safe deposit boxes and empty mat. And they got away with a ton of stuff. Hmm. But then of course, someone spends too much money. Someone opens their mouth and yep. someone's listening, you know, and say, well, wait a minute. I got questions. Yeah. You know, yeah. now they find out, well, you bought a plane ticket. You flew here on this day. You flew back. Oh, and you did too. Oh, and you did too. You know, so <laughs> pretty soon it all starts unraveling. I think it's fun when I'm writing a mystery to try and come up with something that is so hard to solve that readers will right. say, there's no way to solve this. It seems impossible. Right. Then you've got to solve it in a way that's yeah. believable and logical and everything like that, but that they don't see coming. That's a trick. 
Yeah, well, I, when I teach, I, I do a couple of lectures about this. And like the Scott Peterson thing, I talk about all the things he had to do to perpetrate the, tri perpetrate the crime, get rid of the body, and then try to get back home and life go on normally. And now he had his story in his head and he had figured it out and done all the things he needed to do to do the crime and cover for it. And so he picks up the phone and he calls Lacey's mother. It was Christmas Eve for Christ's sakes. The woman's eight and a half months pregnant. I mean, it doesn't get any more diabolical. And he called it. What's the first thing out of his mouth? Lacey is missing. Really? Wouldn't it be like, is Lacey over there? You know, I just got home from fishing and she's not here. Oh, she's not. Okay. Maybe she went out for a walk. I'll go look for her. Duh. But no, he says, Lacey is missing. Really Scott. So consequently I tell people that's where the story starts. Hmm. The story starts with Lacey is missing. In fact, that's a great opening line. Hmm. All this other stuff, all the planning and plotting and boat and hiding it and parking ticket, all this stuff's backstory, hmm. but the the, the criminalist, whoever's trying to solve this case has to go find all of that data and put it together. But all this planning, you talked about, you like to think about crimes, all that's backstory. That's before the story starts, but then it has to be unraveled as the story moves along. Everybody's got a backstory. Every crime that's planned starts with a crime. The police show up when there's a crime, but all this other stuff has gone on and they got to dig up this backstory to put the facts together and say, oh, well, you did it. So, and writing's the same way. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, when your story, I heard someone say one time that stories um, are mysteries, try to remember the exact quote, but move forward, move backward as they move forward. In other words, yes. as, the, as the clues come, you start to move back in time and start to understand some of that backstory. Pretty interesting. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what cops do. They try to find out, you know, you have to unravel the suspect's time before hmm. the crime, because that's when the planning and plotting and, you know, getting the weapon, deciding where to do, how are you going to do it? When you're going to do it? Where are you going to do it? Getting in location. How do you know about this person? How do you know to do this there? And then, oh yeah, where are you? Because everybody's got to be somewhere. If you're not there, where are you? Because you got to have an alibi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, um, the more. But that... that's what you do when you think about a story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever had someone call you up to consult with you and had to, and and decided, look, this person, for whatever reason, I'm not going to help them. Like, because of the way they approach you or something, you're like, wait a minute, there's something suspicious about this cat. <laughs> well, uh, not face to face. I've had a couple of emails that were a little suspicious, but what yeah. I really got is many, many years ago, I got this package. Uh, it was probably 30 pages hmm. hand printed with colored drawings. And it was from a woman incarcerated in a prison in Texas. Hmm. And she sent it to my office because apparently she knew I'd written forensics for dummies and she wanted me to help her overturn her case. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the drawings, she had beat someone to death with a hammer with oh, about Lord. 30 blows and she was claiming self-defense, but she had drawings of the body and the bed and the bedroom where it was and crime scene had like five or six colored drawings and everything was printed very, very block style through the, and it was like 20, 30 pages of an explanation of everything that happened. 
Oh, I just never responded. Yeah. You know, no, <laughs> I didn't even say no. I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, now when you've worked on consulting with some of these, uh, television shows, these series and so on like that, do you find that, um, well, I don't know how to say, like, I'm not trying to put any show in a box and say they didn't get things right. right. But have you ever like consulted with someone and said like, look, that was a big mistake. You guys need to fix this, or you really need to think through this storyline in a new way, because what you're planning on is not, you know, the right, well, right way. Yeah. That's happened a couple of times where they had an idea for something. And, and my response is always, well, you know, almost anything's possible, but that's not even, you know, Mm. unlikely. Yeah. So let's tweak this and this, and then it makes more sense. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm pretty forgiving about all this stuff because yeah, at the yeah. end of the day, it's story yeah. as, 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 as our friend Lee Goldberg famously mm -hmm. says many times is if you give me a choice between fact and story, I'll take story every time. Mm. And so, you know, obviously he comes from the television world. So there's that, but the point is, is, is there's truth to that, that yeah. you're telling a story now, unless you go way off the reservation and everybody rolls their eyes and says, oh, come on now. Yeah. But I do see things that, uh, medically and forensically that I say, oh, I wish they'd asked me. Oh yeah. I just yeah. wish they'd asked me. It's only one little paragraph, one little thing. It's not major, but it, it, it stopped me and it's going to stop other people, you know, anyway, recently, but, uh, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Recently I was working on a, a scene in, in a new book and I had this guy get shot in the shoulder. I was like, he needs to be able to recover. I don't want him shot in the yeah. chest or something. So he's shot in the shoulder. And so I talked to a couple of uh, medical experts and they're like, that can be a pretty serious injury getting well, shot it can. in the shoulder. Or so, it cannot. Yeah. So I was like, I needed to rethink it a little bit. And I finally figured out a way to do it. But, but uh, yeah, I was like, oh, I'll just have him shot in the shoulder or whatever. And they're like, okay, think this through a little bit more carefully. Where does he get yeah. shot? What kind of a gun? you know, what kind of uh, ammunition is used and all this kind of stuff. It's important. Yeah, it yeah. Right. You know, but I mean, in, in order of, of danger, I mean, number one, if you don't hit a major blood vessel, you're probably not going to die from it. You know, yeah. if you hit the, the artery, the brachial artery goes under here, the, the axillary artery, you, you're probably not going to bleed out and die from a shoulder wound. Uh, and number two nerves, cause nerve damage is pretty much permanent. And then number three is bones after that. It's just flesh. It's a flesh wound and you can get by with all kinds of stuff. You know, people have been shot in the brain and, you know, walk 10 miles, you know, I mean, oh it, it, yeah. people are tough. People are tough. And you ask any emergency room doc that you can't kill somebody with a gun. You can shoot them nine times and they'll make it to the ER, especially really? if they're drunk. What? <laughs> you can't kill that? a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would that sort of help them in some way? I, it doesn't, it's just, it's a, it's one of the old emergency room things, oh, but okay. you know, you've seen it, a, a drunk head owns a car on the highway and the family of five's killed and he walks away unscathed. I don't, and he didn't even have his seatbelt on and he had a bottle of whiskey in his lap, you know, it, but he walked away and the others didn't. It's the old emergency room adage. You can't kill a drunk. Hmm. <laughs> how did you, how, Doug, how did you get interested in all of this in the first place? I know you went to medical school and, and um, became a cardiologist, I believe, and uh, right. in that for many years. What was it that got you interested in crime fiction, consulting, forensics, yeah. and this this kind of thing? Well, it's uh, it's interesting. I um, 
I always, you know, I grew up in the South where everybody can tell a story. So you grow up telling story and you grow yeah. up with story, yeah. you know, the, the dinner table where we all ate dinner is always full of stories. And my family, everybody I knew could tell a story, some better than others, but everybody had a story and they could, they could, they could expound on it. Uh, so I always knew I could tell a story, but I wasn't sure I could write it. And I always said that I would uh, write some stuff. I got some stories in my head. I'll write them when I retire. But I guess 25 years ago, I decided, you know, retirement's nowhere near. I mean, I'm not retired now. I still work yeah. a little bit. Um, uh, so if not now, when? Hmm. So I took a couple of night classes in the extension program at UC, University of California, Irvine, which is a great writing program. Joined a couple of writing groups and just started writing. And uh, then from that, you know, you go to writers conferences, people ask you questions. They send you questions about stuff because, well, you're a doctor and yeah. they want to know about this, that, and the other, normally what dead bodies look like and how the poisons work and all that. So from there, I started getting calls from people who were, were in Hollywood doing stuff and, yeah. and uh, Matt Witten, Lee Goldberg, uh, you know, people like that and other people, they'd contact me about stuff. I said, sure, fine. And I'd answer the questions for them. And then from that, uh, forensics for dummies and how done it forensics and, and the whole blog and everything just came from that. But it was mainly answering questions for people, which is fun stuff. Yeah. It makes me think. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. You know, uh, over the years, whenever I started writing novels, I really never thought that research would be all that interesting. Like I, I got started, I thought, well, story is really important, but I'll, I'll have to put up with some researches. But over the years, I've found that research and getting mm -hmm. the information is some of the most fun um, aspect of writing because you get to meet people like yourself who are experts, you know, in the field, scientists and, you know, doctors, medical researchers, and so on. I say, how do you, and most, most people love to talk about what they're good at and passionate about. And absolutely. And, uh, yeah. And then suddenly you've, you know, you've got this expert who's giving you good inside information. Yeah, I mean, I, I never, I tell people never underestimate the power of the word author or, 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 or fiction writer, yeah. because if you approached people, uh, you know, prepared and professionally and kindly, yeah. and you talk to them and say, I, I need some help with something, they will bend over backwards mm -hmm. to help you because people do want to share their knowledge. Yeah, it's, I think it's part of human nature. Yeah, no. And um, I love what you mentioned earlier, too, about growing up in a culture where story and storytelling was right. important. And, um, and now you have, you've written 22 novels, or 22 books, I think, right. many novels over the years. And um, what, what have you learned about story writing or storytelling that you were never taught? Um, just oh, through the uh, process of, yeah. of writing. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I know you, and I know how cerebral you are and, <laughs> and you think things through and, you know, and, and you're dedicated to process and all that stuff. I know things we've talked about it many times. <laughs> how do you spin a good yarn? Yeah. And, uh, you're probably the only person I know it actually has a degree in storytelling, but whatever. <laughs> I didn't even know they had those. I would have, I would have majored in that in college, yeah, if I go. could. but, uh, uh, it's the single most important thing was find your voice, hmm. get out of the way, hmm. get out of the way and tell your own story. Because I tell people, look, don't fret about all this. There's only two stories. Hmm. There are no others. Somebody comes, somebody goes, that's it. Something, somebody, something, some situation comes into a character's life, knocks it off balance. And the story is they try to solve the problem and get things back in balance, or they go somewhere and get involved in something that's puts them out of the water. And now they're like a stranger in a strange land. Yeah. 
But if you think about it, every story is that way, you know, Jaws, a shark came into Brody's life. Yeah. His life was good. He was a small town cop. He had nothing to do, hang around, drink coffee, talk to the people. And suddenly a catastrophe appears, yeah. you know, Luke Skywalker wanted to go to the Academy and all that, but guess what? A droid appeared, yeah. changed his whole life. So those are the stories, but they haven't been told by you. So tell the story your way, get out of the way. Like you, I probably, I probably read a hundred books on writing. Yeah. All the techniques and all the stuff way back over 20 years ago, I read everything because I wanted to know the rules. Uh, you know, you, you, medicine, you got to know the rules. You got to know the facts. You got to know the science. You got to know how things work, but yeah. same way with writing. I dissected, I put it together that way. And so I knew all the rules, Yeah, but that's not writing. And once you, and I remember it was around the time I was writing, started writing the Jake Longley series, the Royal pains books and stuff. I quit outlining. Hmm. I said, outlining is stifling me. I'm spending too much time thinking about the plots and all this, you know, keeping balls yeah. in the air. And, and then I'm, then I'm bored with the story by the time I've written, you know, 70, 70 plot points, I, I'm done. I, I know the story I'm bored with it. So now I got to sit down and write it. And that's how, so I found, don't do that. Just start writing, pick a scene and start writing. And so what it did, it freed me up to tell the story my way. And I still try to do that. I sit down every day and think, okay, you're just talking to a friend about this story. Let's just go to the next scene. And then let's just go to the next scene. Let's just go. You can all, you know, and write that first, first draft fast. My first drafts are. 55, 60,000 words, the book will end up being 70, 75, hmm. but that gets the meat and potatoes on the table. Hmm. And now I go back and I start reading, reading it and redoing it. By the time I go through the first rewrite, it's up to 65,000 because I fleshed out things and added things and moved things and all that. And then I go back through it two or three more times. One of which is printed out and, you know, read with a pen, but, <laughs> uh, but the, you know, and at the end of the day that, that I use, after I've gone through it four or five times, I'm done with it, hmm. you know, I'm done with it, but, uh, tell the story your way, find your voice. That's the single most important thing. And when an agent tells a writer who, you know, want to be, that wants to get published and all said, so I'm looking for something that speaks to me. I'm looking for something that's fresh. I'm looking for something that moves me. What they're saying is I want to hear your voice. If you got a voice that hooks me, hmm. what the story is, is really secondary. I'll get into the story. I'll read 10 pages instead of one and a half. If <laughs> I like your voice yeah. and then I'm in the story, you know? No, that's great. And, um, you know, when people talk about voice, finding your voice and, uh, you know, discovering it and so on like that, do you have any other suggestions or techniques that have worked for you as far as like saying, okay, this is the voice, the story voice for this story or for me as an author, did it take you a while to find that? Or were there any, you know, ways that you used to say, okay, that's really helpful. I'm going to, I'm going to do that again. Well, yeah. I mean, it looked like it took like 10 years because, yeah. you know, but I think the single most important thing and, uh, is read a lot. And I know Nan and I, way back when there were borders books out here, there was a borders, not far from us. And so on Saturday or Sunday morning, we'd go over there and get some coffee and they had a little coffee shop in the bookstore. And I'd go over to the crime fiction or thriller or mystery shells. And I would pull maybe a dozen books off. Hmm. I'd have a big stack of them. I walk back to our table, you know, and we'd be sitting there having our coffee and I would open them up and I would read the first couple of pages of each one of them. Hmm. And then I would 
it, uh, invariably one or two of them would really catch me and then I'd go buy the damn book. <laughs> so I always walked out of there with half a dozen books. Then I'd put those back and I'd get a dozen more. So I started reading how stories begin and how they unfold and how this particular author begins this story. And then what does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What is this story? And in two or three pages, you can get that. And I started seeing, you know, all these are different and yet they're all successful hmm. and they're, and they start in different places and they start, some of them start with dialogue. Some of them start with action. Some of them start with the weather, even though, you know, <laughs> Elmore Leonard said, don't ever do that. He didn't tell James Lee Burke that he's done pretty well for himself. Yeah. yeah he has, the weather starts about every chapter, but, but it's a character in, in Louisiana, but, um, they all started it differently. They all told it different. They had a different rhythm. They had a different syntax. They had a different feel, a different mood. And so I said, okay. And years go by and you yeah. amalgamate all that into it. I think of all the writers, like I said, I love James Lee Burke, but I think of all the writers I read that helped me the most was Elmore Leonard. Hmm. Just reading his stuff. If you read his stuff and devoured, I've probably read every one of his books two or three times, you know, the crime fiction stuff, the later yeah. stuff. And, uh, you learn so much about storytelling and it, even by osmosis, if you don't even think about it, because he has a way of telling a story that's just wonderful. Yeah. And you, you know, part of those things float into your writing. I think it's true that voice is, um, is super vital and, but it's kind of hard to teach, I think. Like, I always try to help people do that. What you do is like, step out of the way, get out of the way. And people say, how do I do that? <laughs> like, what does that look like? And um, I, I think that um, writing without pretense, writing without yes. trying to show off or to be like someone else, all of those things can kind of help with yeah. you, you know, discerning what your specific voice is. Yeah. I, I think I tell people that I said, you know, I can't define voice to you, but it's like a good piece of art. You know it when you see it and you know, voice, when you see it, you know, the mood of a, even a TV show or a movie, you know, it pretty quickly yeah. that this is something I'm interested in. This has got me, and especially with a book. So I say it comes down to knowledge, experience, and confidence. Hmm. Knowledge is read, 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 read. Experience is right, 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 right. <laughs> and those two together give you confidence. There you go confident that you can do your thing, but I, I can't define it for you. Yeah. And I can't tell you how to do it, but I can tell you, get out of the way, tell the story. Don't worry if you're using passive voice. Don't worry if you're using sentence fragments, don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about spelling, grammar, all that crap that can be fixed later. Mm. You know, and we all tell, we all talk to each other in passive voice all the time. You know, I was going over here, or, you know, he was heading down the road here. We do it all the time. That's how we talk. Yeah. But that's not how you write unless it works <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago in uh the city where i live they had a contest for uh, they called it pizza wars it was kind of like star wars but anyway so that all the local pizza uh eateries and pizzerias and so on restaurants all brought their pizza and people would try sample it and they would all vote on what the best pizza was yeah. and uh, one of the things that struck me was if you know pizza, if you sample a lot of different pizzas, right. you realize, okay, this one comes from Antonio's Pizzeria because it has a specific flavor right. of his specific sauce, cheese, and all this kind of stuff. 
And so when I talk about voice, that's about the closest that I can come to it. I was like, look, mm-hmm. make your story so that when I read it, I can be like, I know this is a distinctive flavor of this pizza that Pizza Hut or or Domino's or whatever, yeah. that's different. It, it's not the same. And so so creating that that flavor of pizza of writing and what you do. Yeah. And that's a great analogy. Yeah. Because if you're going to make pizza at home, you can't make Domino's pizza and you can't make Joe's pizza. You can only make your pizza. Yeah. Yeah. So make it the best pizza that you can make. And then that's yours. Yeah. You know, and the same way with the story, same way with the story. But I would, I would tell people that if you're worried about your voice and all that kind of stuff, start just writing scenes that have nothing to do with what you're working on. Just have a vision for, for, I got this cool scene that takes place in this bar, you know, and there's this guy and, 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 and this other guy comes up and they have a conversation and I can see it. Just sit down and write it because it's not tied to anything. Just let it go. What you'll find is go back and read it and say, well, well, that's a lot more relaxed because you're not trying to fit it as a cog, as a box car on a train. that you're putting together it's free flowing well a lot of those are going to turn into stories themselves and now you've already got uh the other thing i think i i often do what hemingway does i know what the next scene's going to be so i'll write a couple of hundred words of it before i stop so that when i start back the next day i'm not cold i've already got the scene started yeah hemingway would stop in the middle of a sentence sometimes yeah i've heard that yeah 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 I tend to revise as I go. So typically I'll work in a scene. I'll go back the next day, reread and move forward like that. I mean, everyone has their own techniques. And no, that's... So, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but I think it's helpful to try different things, you know, and sort of see which one. Sure. For the way you think and the way that you shape yeah. stories. Well, and, and I do the same. I mean, I find, you know, you get on and you get the chapter 25 and you're, you know, you're 25,000 words into it or whatever. And you start, you do, you do something say, well, if I do that, then this has to go. So you go back and change that real quickly. That's fine. Yeah. But I don't do heavy editing and stuff. Yeah. Invariably, I get to around the 50,000 word mark. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, this, this is, this sound that this is a hot mess. You know, it's been months that I've worked on this and I haven't visited the initial part of it. I haven't, I haven't seen the story unfold yeah. for the last three or four months. Cause I've been doing piecemeal this, 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 and this I've been writing little parts. I will go back to the beginning then. Yeah. Because now I know what's down the road. I know how it's going to end. I often don't know when I start yeah. when, where, and how it's going to end. I just know the good guys are going to win. The bad guys are going to lose. That's about <laughs> it. So then I'll go back to the beginning and I'll start my first rewrite through. Hmm. And bang, 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 bang. And it goes very fast because, you know, after 22 books, you kind of know what you're doing. <laughs> but now when I get to that end where the blank page is going to be the next step, I'm on a roll. I got the story. I've cleaned up all the big stuff. Yeah. I know exactly who everybody is. I know how they think. I know how they walk. I know how they talk because a lot of the characters you're learning about and bang, I can fly onto the end and then I'll start my full rewrites. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so it's really the same thing. It's really the same thing. Yeah. But whatever works. Yeah. No. So uh, you have this new book that just came out and I want you to tell us anything you want to about it. Tallyman, um, it's part of a series from what I understand. Right. Yeah. Right. And, it's uh, the third, it's the third and what I call my Kane Harper series. And uh, just briefly, Bobby Kane and Harper McCoy are non-biologic brother and sisters that were 
admitted to, if you will, this gypsy uh, itinerant band of people. Um, Harper was one year old when she was purchased from her alcoholic Cherokee mother. So she's half Cherokee uh, for a bottle of whiskey and a couple of hundred bucks. And Bobby, Bobby Kane, about the same time was picked up. He had been abandoned at two months in a train station in Houston and the itinerants were going through there and they stopped by the train station. They saw him there and they took him. So they were brought in at the same time, even though Harper's a year older, Well, they were raised together yeah. by this gypsy fan. And so what happened? Bobby learned to, they both learned to hunt and fish and live off the land because this itinerant group would move around to small towns. They, 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 Bobby learned to be a second story thief because he was, he was lanky and lean and he, he had the skills. He could climb anything. He could get in and out of any place. He was very quiet, very silent. And then he became an expert with knives from the time he was four years old. He started playing with knives and they taught him how to throw up. So by age seven, they put on these shows when they'd go around town, he was known as Bobby blade because he would throw knives at stuff. Sometimes at Harper where she would <laughs> hold stuff. Harper yeah. was a con artist, a natural born con artist who could, who could lie and cheat and steal and pick your pocket and cry on demand and manipulate you. And, and she was just a master at that. And she had those brown eyes and, oh, 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 you know, and so the two of them learned criminal skills, living off the land skills, but then at age 12 and 13, respectively, the family got broken up. They got sent to an orphanage. They got adopted by two families and separated. And they had grown up sleeping in the same bed in the same tent in the same back of a pickup truck. So, I mean, they were like this when suddenly they're separated. They didn't even know each other's last names now and they're gone. Well, Bobby goes to the military. They quickly discover his skills for stealth, stealth and his skills with a knife. They drag him into ranger school and then with the Navy SEALs and Delta force. And he becomes a point of the spear assassin in the middle East. So if they got a bomb maker in a well-guarded house on the third floor, Bobby could get in there, kill him and get out. And no one was ever know he was there in the middle of the night. That was his skill set. Harper went to the Navy, Naval intelligence, CIA started running black ops. And they run into each other in Afghanistan. When Bobby's transferred into a mission at the last minute to again, to kill a bomb maker and Harper's running the mission and they see each other after 15 years. So now they reunite, they leave the military and they're back and now they're fixers and they fix the unfixable by whatever means are necessary. So that's there. So in this book, uh, a college professor in a small town in Southern Tennessee is out jogging. Like he usually does at night. He's a very beloved professor and he's 30 something. He's he, he wins best teacher. Everybody loves him. He's kind of a ladies man. He's a good looking kid. He's very smart. He's out jogging and he gets murdered hmm. and left on the side of the road. Well, he turns out he is the son of the U S ambassador to NATO uh -huh. and his mother, the, the ambassador, calls Kane and Harper and said, look, I don't want this turning into a, a, a nightmare. I know the FBI is going to be involved, but I'm going to keep them at bay because of my position. I don't want this to turn into the circus, hmm. go down there and find out what happened and make it right. Hmm. And that's how the story starts. And no, that's it fascinating. Out that there's, a, there's a serial killer operating yeah. in the area known as the tally man, because oh, okay. he carves the number of his victims into the bodies when he dumps them and stages them. And so he's known, he's been known as the tally man. He's been quiet for a few years and now he's back 
do these stories relate? Are they different? Are they, is there a cross connection between the, the, the professor's murder and, and, and the, this young girl that now reappears, um, the, 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 a new body. And so that's how the story unfolds and it goes from there and it, it gets pretty down and dirty. Hmm. <laughs> The Kane Harper series is much darker than the Jake Longley series, which is funnier, but yeah. No, um, so it has a lot of, I think when you said kind of down dirty, a little bit darkness, you know, some darkness to it, but but authenticity, I think, um, is that you're really trying to get into, well, okay, you're the there are some bad people doing bad oh, things. Yeah. We're going to solve it. We're going to stop them. Oh, yeah. I mean... There's people that are so much darker than anybody I've ever known that, that you just sit there and shake your head. And I, I don't just mean serial killers. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a guy here, you know, if you want to see sociopath, look up the name Skylar de Leon to make a very long story short. He took this couple was going to steal their boat, took them out on a cruise, you know, to kind of test out the boat. Basically he ended up taping them both together alive tying them to an anchor and throwing the anchor out in Newport Harbor here, which is six miles deep. When you get out there alive, tied to a chain, to an anchor overboard, never found the bodies, never seen again. Now imagine, just, just imagine, just imagine you cannot, this couple that was devoted to their kids and good people bang. So where does this come from in the human genome? Mm. You know, where does it come from? So, yeah. Yeah. Whatever you can think of, somebody's done worse. <laughs> That's true. I mean, the paradox <laughs> is that humans can be so oh. cruel and so ruthless and heartless, cold-hearted, and also so yes. passionate and loving and caring and and redeemable and all that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the dichotomy of humans, man. Yeah. That's what makes I think stories that work well kind of admit or maybe explore that the paradox you know of what it is to live in a world where both are true i mean some stories <laughs> kind of read them and it's almost like they're only dark and just like wow that was really you know mm -hmm. depressing or something right. it's all um sort of lighthearted, which is okay but it seems like maybe they um ignore the fact uh some of the facts about about life and in, in the world Right. But I, I really like the stories that are honest about human nature, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's why, uh, e even, even the baddest of bad have to have a social redeeming layer somewhere. Yeah. Um, remember they are the hero of their own story. Hmm. So they don't see themselves as doing anything that, well, yeah, why not? Yeah. You know, and, and, um, you know, like Gary Ridgway, the green river killer, he thought, prostitutes were a scourge and it was his duty in life to rid the earth of them. So, well, he rid the earth of 49 of them at least, but we look back and say, really, you're just going to take these young girls who are downtrodden, who are, who, who are forced into this situation and you're going to take them out and murder them. What's wrong with you? You know, to him, it was like, Hey, you know, so it's just, yeah, think about Hannibal Lecter. I mean, he was voted the number one villain of all time, you know, in literature and, uh, but wouldn't you love to sit down and have dinner with him as long as you weren't on the menu? I mean, this guy was smart. He was intelligent. He was cultured. He was worldly. I mean, it would be a great conversation, hmm. but he got this problem. You know, he kills and eats people. Bit of <laughs> I remember hearing, a, um, an interview with Ridgeway and, and, uh, yeah. they said to him, what makes you different from other people? Right. Gary? 
Yes. And he said that caring thing. That caring thing. Yeah. Which is one of the most chilling things I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Like he yeah. knew that people other than himself cared about other, you know, people. Yeah. Right. But what made him different was he didn't have that caring. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. That's what the, the, the cop that chased him for 30 years said, said, what makes you different, Gary? He said, I guess it's that caring thing. And it's like, oh, that covers it. Yeah. That's, that's it. Crazy. So we got it now. <laughs> but you mentioned redeemable and, um, you know, your stories touch on some darkness, but, uh, you know, from what I've read some of your books, they don't just, they're not just so, so heavy all the time. No. It's that the characters do find, you know, hope and justice and, and the pathway toward those things. Oh, sure. People like, you know, the good guys to win and the bad guys to lose in the end. Yeah. But, you have to, I hope that at least somewhere along the line, there are portions of the bad guy that people say, well, you know, he's not a hundred percent. There is this little thing. Yeah. Um, um, but again, you got to make a villain, a villain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they got to be worthy of being killed. You know. <laughs> Now, what are some of the aspects of stories that really draw you in personally when you're, you're reading voice is one that we talked about a little bit, right? Right. There's something else where you're reading. You're like, this is really humming along. I love this, this type of story, right. the story itself. Yeah. I, I think uh, a character, of course, I mean, yeah, characters yeah. next, you got, you got to be able to identify with a character. And, and if the voice draws you into that character's world, then you're going to go a long way with that character. Even if the story is not up to par, but you're going to go with that character. Okay. Yeah. I think setting is so overlooked, hmm, but yeah. where the story takes place, the ambiance, the, in other words, the table that it's set on, makes a lot of difference because that will pull you into a story also. Um, and then for me, probably number three, it, it, you know, it should be the bad guy, but I'm not sure that it is. It's the minor characters, huh. the characters that come and go in this person's life as you read along. And, and if they're interesting and they're fun and they're, and you can see them and you can feel them. That's right. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's a minor character. Don't give them a name. No, give them a name. You know, I don't care if they're Betty, the florist, you know, <laughs> give them a name because uh, Betty, the florist is a lot different than Veronica, the florist. I'm sorry. You're going to get a different mental image. Okay. And so, uh, give them a name and, and make them the star of that little vignette, that little scene, you make them important, even if you're never going to see them again, because it adds flavor to the entire setting, the entire mm -hmm. milieu of the story. So, and I really love minor characters. I yeah. love to, I love to write them. Yeah. That's interesting. I really haven't heard people kind of emphasize that so much, but that's fascinating. I think that's cool. Read Elmore Leonard. Yeah. You know, he's got a lot of characters and a lot of them just come and go, but they're all just, wow. How did he come up with this? <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, I wish you the best with this new book. I mean, uh, it's been, thank great you very much. I really enjoyed, you know, picking your brain a little bit. I know both of us typically teach at conferences and we're typically teaching in different rooms. So I, I don't exactly get to, to exactly. sit and chat with exactly. you about story and storytelling. So, um, is there a place online where people can connect with you? Maybe see, uh, you know, more information about this new book, or are you on social media at all when people might want to follow you? 
Sure. I'm on, I'm on all the social media, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook and LinkedIn and, and, uh, Goodreads and, uh, BookBub and all that stuff. But if you go to dplylemd.com, it's dplylemd.com from there, you can see all the books. You can connect to my blog. You can connect to my old radio show that I did with Jan for many years, and you can connect to my podcast series. They're all connected right there. And, um, and, uh, you know, and you can always buy books through there too. <laughs> It'll connect you to the right sources. <laughs> Excellent. No, that's great. Yeah. So that sounds good. And, um, so anyway, thanks, uh, so much for, for being here, for joining me. And thank you. Yeah. And thanks to our listeners. Thank you for, um, for checking us out to, um, to see about other interviews. So um, you can search for us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Amazon music, or wherever you might listen to your podcasts. Or you can always click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Let's do, let's do the line again. For some reason, you cut out for a second there. Oh, okay. I don't know. It was weird. So let's just do that again. And then okay. probably when we're done, I'll probably re-record the very beginning because I didn't love okay. it. Okay. Yeah, it's all right. All right. Here we go. So tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.